or back in the Gospel of Mark again this morning. So if you'll take your Bible and go to Mark 7, Mark chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, I believe you'll find it on 843 in your pew Bible, page 843. We're going to look at quite a large section of uh, Mark's Gospel today. Uh, Mark 7:24 to 8:30, and there's there's a real value I'm learning in doing this kind of high view exposition of Scripture like this. Normally, we'll take a much smaller passage and kind of look at it in more detail, but I'm learning that there is a great value in also stepping back and seeing the forest and seeing that 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 God inspired Mark when he was writing his gospel to not just put random stories together about who Jesus is. But rather, he has intention in every single um, story or situation in the life of Jesus that he plugs in. He has a reason for why he put it there. And that's what I want us to appreciate this morning and come to see, is that in, we're going to look at seven different sections from Mark 7:24 to 8.30. And you'll be amazed as we start to look at why Mark structured his gospel in this way. And I hope that becomes clear as we work through the text this morning. The title of my sermon is Expect the Unexpected. And in some ways, that could be the theme of the entire gospel. Right from the very beginning, when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist announces him, even John the Baptist is expecting something other than what we receive in the person of Jesus Christ. We see a humble, meek Galilean show up to be baptized by John. And John is initially struck, and he doesn't expect that. Rather, he expects that Jesus would be the one who would baptize him. Then we meet the religious leaders, and we would expect that they would be eager. Finally, the Messiah has come, and he meets great opposition from them. Then we would expect, as he comes to choose his own disciples, that he's going to pick the top of the pick. I mean, he's going to take the guys, the leaders. He's going to go to the synagogue and rally those guys, but he picks fishermen. Over and over and over, Mark is teaching us to expect the unexpected when it comes to Jesus Christ. And no greater place is that seen in a more concentrated form than right here in Mark chapter 7 and 8. I want to summarize these seven passages for us just so you kind of get a lay of the land, and then we're going to dive in and look at each one of them in a brief way. First of all, in verse 24, you have the account of Jesus healing the demon-possessed daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. And that is followed on the, by Jesus' healing of a deaf man, which is followed by another feeding, this time, of 4,000 Gentiles, whereas in the previous account in Mark 6, he fed 5,000 mostly Jews. Well, after the feeding, we see the Pharisees not believing and the disciples still without understanding. And then Jesus heals a blind man. And then Peter gets it. And he announces that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What's the relationship? What's Mark doing here? Mark is getting this idea across. We do not come to understand and recognize Jesus as the Savior King that God has sent him to be unless he graciously opens our eyes to see him. You have this wonderful account with a Syrophoenician woman and the way he deals with her. Then you have that followed by Jesus healing a deaf person. Then the feeding, which the disciples don't understand. 
then Jesus healing a blind man, then Peter understanding. So Mark has structured this in such a way that we would get that as we read the gospel as a whole. And so that's one of the values of doing an, uh, an overview like this, and I hope that already you're beginning to sense this is, this is great. Well, I've got three points this morning that I want to mine out of this text, and we're going to take these, these, these parts of the narrative in different order. My first point is unexpected unbelief. Unexpected unbelief. My second point is unexpected faith or unexpected belief. And my third point is an unexpected explanation. Unexpected unbelief, unexpected faith, and unexpected explanation. Let's start with unexpected unbelief. In two different parts of this account, from Mark 7:24 to 8:30, we meet unbelief where we would expect to meet faith. The first place that we meet unbelief is in the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 11. Let's look at that account. This is right on the heels of Jesus' feeding of the 4,000, and in verse 11, the Pharisees come and are unbelieving. Let's begin in verse 11 of chapter 8. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. <laughs> it, just, it should stagger us again and again. Jesus has proven himself to be the Messiah over and over again, and nevertheless, the Pharisees still come and begin to argue with him. What are they arguing about this time? They're seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, we need to be really clear. They're not seeking a miracle. They've seen miracles. They are seeking God's divine stamp on him. They want God to show up put the spotlight on him and say, this is my son. That's what they're wanting. They are wanting to not have to believe. They're not wanting to have to exercise faith. They're wanting to argue with Jesus and say, Jesus, if you really were the Messiah, we would have hardly heard an audible voice by now, and it would be an audible voice right now. You don't have any strange glow about you. You don't look special. You look like every other rabbi. And in fact... You've, as we saw last week, you're already breaking the traditions. You're showing yourself to be demon-possessed because you're not holding to the tradition of the fathers and you're not following our rules and rituals and customs. So they got a big problem with him. How, which Jesus' response? Grief, sadness, verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Jesus is even grieved by the Pharisees. He loves them even in the midst of their incredible unbelief. That doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that he's getting ready to say some strong words. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, went to the other side. We meet unbelief. We're coming off of a miracle of Christ where he feeds the 4,000 and he's met by the unbelief of the most religious people in the whole community. Now, this applies to us, and we need to be careful of this because we can tend to think that churchgoers or those who have a especially religious background are going to be more likely to respond to the gospel. And while it is true that... Often, by God's grace, 
we do see those who are religious, who are the, the Pauls of the world, who are outwardly moral and religious, meet grace and mercy. God saves the religious. He saves the moral. Praise God. But, he all, but, but, but often, he doesn't. We expect, well, this person grew up in a Christian home. This, is person, this, this person, they went to church. They're religious. They're moral. They, they would receive the gospel. Not necessarily. This passage actually shows the opposite. It's often those who have the most knowledge of the scriptures who can ultimately reject Jesus. You would expect to find faith here, but instead you meet skepticism, you meet resistance, and you meet hardness of heart. But you not only meet unexpected unbelief in the Pharisees, you also meet unexpected unbelief in the disciples. In chapter 8, verse 1, we see another miracle. Now keep in mind, disciples have seen this before. So let's read the account, chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, another time, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, and he'd said this before, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, uh, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed him, them, he said that, the, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, what was the disciples' response? Look at verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? I mean, the disciples should get it by now, right? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? We're like these guys, aren't we? We see God's faithfulness, God's power. We'll sing, great is thy faithfulness, and tomorrow morning we'll be doubting it. We are just like these guys. And we expect, right, we expect them to get it. We ex we're read we're reading, imagine reading Mark's gospel for the first time. You're hearing it. All right, the second miracle. It's feeding them again. Look, how many loaves? How can one man, how can we feed all these people? They're asking the same questions. They're doing the same thing they just did. They're doubting the same promises, the same, they get the same incident all over again. I mean, doesn't that happen even in our own lives? God will bring us through a trial, demonstrate his faithfulness. 
will go through a similar trial, almost exactly the same way, and we forget the way he treated us before. We forget what he did for us in the past. We're so prone to fall into that way of thinking. And Jesus says, don't you remember? Don't you remember? Don't you yet understand? So why the second miracle? Why does Mark illustrate this second miracle here? Because the disciples still don't have full understanding. They still don't get Jesus. I mean, we can sometimes think, we're looking at the disciples, and we can sometimes think that when Jesus chose them, they just knew it. I mean, they left everything. They had to know something. Well, they did. God did a decisive work in their heart, but they had a ton of learning to do. They were raw, completely raw. And we need to appreciate that as older, especially as we get older in the faith. We can sometimes think that when somebody gets saved, somebody becomes a Christian, that things are going to change, and things are going to change. But a lot of things are still going to be fuzzy and foggy. And I just want to encourage some of you, some of you who may be here as a visitor or something this morning, you're not a Christian, and you think you've got to know everything before you join the club. You think you've got to, you know, I've got to figure out what all this is about first. I've got to really get, not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We're following an unexpected Savior. We're, we're following a Jesus who we can't fully explain or know. And... Even what we know about him, we see through a glass darkly, so we just invite you into the journey. We just invite you to join us in our pursuit of this great Jesus that we can't put in a box. So don't feel like that you have to know everything. We don't know everything. Disciples didn't know everything. None of us knows everything. We're, we know some things by his grace. We're growing in those things. We're, we're coming to understand more of who Jesus is, but we haven't got a clue ultimately, when it comes to how great or how wonderful he really is. So, join us. Jesus, now, Mark shows this account, tells us the feeding of the 4,000, to show that the disciples still don't get it, and Jesus has now gone into a Gentile area. He's not feeding Jews again. He's now feeding Gentiles. Get the picture. Mark is not only showing now that Jesus is the Savior of the Jews, but he's also the Savior of the Gentiles. He's equally concerned with shepherding Gentiles as he is shepherding Israel. So that's a part of the reason Mark has put this here as well. So he's teaching his disciples that he's a Savior that's come for everyone, not just for the Jews. So we meet unexpected unbelief in the Pharisees and in the disciples, but we also meet unexpected faith in this account. And we see it first in the woman from Syrophoenicia. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7. Unexpected belief. Jesus certainly didn't expect it at one level. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's leaving Jewish territory, moving into Gentile territory. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden. Now, why didn't he want to know? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, he's taking, he's possibly, we don't know if his disciples went with him for sure. We're assuming that they went with him. And they're going away to rest. They're getting at, they've just met serious hostility with Pharisees, and we see right from the beginning that, that the, the, the account from last week that we looked at with the Pharisees was intense, and he's now stepping away from that. 
Verse 25, But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, listen to this crescendo of demerit, as one commentator called it. We are right now going to hear all the reasons that this woman should not be believing in Jesus and all the reasons culturally that are against her for receiving Israel's Messiah. First of all, Mark, and Mark draws our attention to these things, verse 26, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. That is unexpected. That a Syrophoenician woman, Gentile, would come and find Jesus in a house and kneel down before him and beg him to deliver her little daughter from an unclean spirit. That's exactly what she asked. Begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. (laughs) Now, you've read that passage before, and you've thought, pretty harsh. It's pretty cold. That's Jesus... Just called her a dog. We have to understand a couple of things here, first of all. Dog, even if we want to to leave it at that, is is referring to a household pet, not a wild animal. The word that's used here by Mark is referring to someone who's part of the household who's lesser than what the primary people would receive, but is still part of the household. So it's not necessarily a demeaning term. It was common custom for Jews to refer to to the Gentiles as dogs, those who were outside the covenant, not part of the people of Israel. And it could be used in derogatory ways. But I don't think Jesus is predominantly using it in a derogatory way here. He's just talking her language. He's he's getting inside of her world. Now, who are the children? He says, let the children eat first. We let the children eat first. Mark is possibly referring to the disciples here, if the disciples are with him. But I think primarily he's referring to the Jewish people. He's saying, look, I came first, just like Paul said in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's an order here. I think that's what Jesus is picking up on here. He says, let the children be fed first. In other words, I'll get to the Gentiles. I'm coming. I'll be there. Okay? The disciples are going to be sent out after I'm raised from the dead, and they're going to, they're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the whole world is going to be filled with the knowledge of me. But right now, I am preoccupied with the people of Israel. So let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread. I'm here to give the children the bread first and to give it to you. But this woman, aren't you so encouraged by her response? She is a wise woman because she picks up on what Jesus is saying. She answers him, Yes, Lord. You don't have to choose between us. You don't have, it doesn't have to be an either or. What does she say? It's not right. Or sorry. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You don't have to do one or the other. Right now, Lord Jesus, you don't have to be the Savior of Israel only. You can be the Savior of a Gentile too. You can save a Gentile right now. 
Because you don't have, you can still give the children their bread first, and I'll just come get the crumbs. I'll get the crumbs. In verse 29, his response, For this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. What kind of power our Savior has. He, he didn't touch anybody. Gone, gone, gone. Speaking the word. Demons left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. What an unexpected account. What a strange thing. This Syrophoenician woman with such faith. We see her desperation. We see how humble she is. She doesn't say, don't call me a dog. She said, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll eat crumbs. Just give me crumbs. Give me, I'll take crumbs from you. We see how humble she is. We see how she begs Jesus. We see how she knows Jesus is able to help her. We see how she keeps on asking. We see how she accepts Jesus' word for what it is. This is faith. And keep in mind, the disciples may be watching this account, and they have not often seen Jews believe like this, much less a Gentile woman. This is blowing their mind. Blowing their mind. And this is what God would have of us. This is what faith is. It's recognizing your desperate need for Jesus. It's recognizing that he is able to help you. It's trusting what he says. It's humbling yourself before him to receive from him what he has to give. And that's exactly what this woman receives. Jesus, now listen to me, Jesus always accepts people who need him. He never, ever in any of the gospel accounts turns away sincere people who desire what he has. He never, ever, ever turns people away who really want him. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter how bad you are. It does not matter if you come from a Christian family. It does not matter if you, if you didn't. What matters is that you know you need Jesus. And if you know you need Jesus and you go to Jesus, He will not send you away. He will not send you away. Jesus is willing to accept anyone who will trust Him. Now, what do, what do we learn? We learn that faith is found sometimes in the most unlikely of places. Some of you may be sitting here this morning and it's like, yeah, I'm exhibit A. How in the world did this happen? How in the world did this happen? Why am I sitting here where I was 25 years ago? That makes no sense. Faith is found in sometimes the most unlikely places. You know, you might be running from Jesus right now, and you don't even realize you're running to Jesus. Jesus has already chased you down, and you feel like you're running from him. Unexpected. He shows up in your life when you don't even expect it to show up. How in the world did this happen? Started dating this girl. She's a Christian. How did I get to a church? God has a plan for you that you don't even anticipate. Shows up in the most unexpected ways. Are there people you've never... Now, think about this. Are there people right now in your life friends, co-workers, family members that you have not spoken to about Christ simply because you think they'll never become a Christian. 
Take the Syrophoenician woman as an example and be encouraged. Don't ever believe that. Don't ever think that person is so unlikely to become a Christian, they will never become a Christian. They will probably become a Christian. (laughs) You never know. We should not write off people or groups of people as those who will never become Christians. We should never do that. Also, we must not get frustrated with people who do not yet see the truth. We have got to be so patient with people. As patient as God is with us in our remaining blindness, we have got to persevere with people, even those of us who are, those who are our children. We must not give up on praying for them caring for them, giving the gospel to them, if they, and they still don't see it. They still don't see it. They still don't see it. They're never going to see it, Lord. Don't ever say that. They may see it. We must keep in mind that when we saw the truth, it wasn't because we were clever. It wasn't because we listened well enough. But it was because God was graciously at work in us. And we need to wait prayerfully for God to work the same way while walking humbly before others. Faith is found in the most unexpected places, as well as unbelief. But a second example, not only the Syrophoenician woman's faith, but also Peter. Chapter 8, verse 27. Here, we've got Peter getting it. But not completely getting it. as we'll see next week. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, well, one of the prophets. And he asked them, uh, Peter, or he asked them, all the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Now's the moment. Feel the tension. This has been Mark's ongoing, this is the turning point of the Gospel of Mark right here. This is the hinge on which the the Gospel of Mark takes a decisive turn. Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Right now, through the first eight chapters, you've been having this gathering momentum, these little portraits of Jesus met by unbelief and faith in strange ways and unexpected ways, and all of a sudden, like a breakthrough, the watershed moment of the gospel comes in, and Jesus is now met with a correct assessment by his own disciple Peter. Peter answered, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You are the Messiah. You are God's promised Savior. Way back in Genesis 3.15, when when you promised, right when Adam and Eve sinned and the curse fell upon them, you said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the... We believe you're that seed. You are that one. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about this. This is the watershed moment of the gospel because the first eight chapters of the gospel of Mark is answering this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You get your answer right here at the end of of Mark 8. 
The second half of the gospel, 9 to 16, is why did he show up? Why did he come? And you're going to get this focus on the death and resurrection and the cross work of Jesus and the rest of the gospel. So Mark knows exactly what he's doing right now. He's writing to us. He's writing to non-Jews. He's writing to us and saying, look, I want you to get who this Jesus is. I want you to be able to say what Peter says. You are the Christ. And then read the rest of this gospel, understanding why he came and what kind of Christ he is. And we'll look at that as we continue to work our way through the gospel of Mark. So Peter comes to understand who Jesus is really is. Now, before I go on to my unexpected explanation, I want to do something a little out of the ordinary because I forgot to do it. Nathan Ladd was supposed to read Scripture this morning, and I, and I totally took his place. I came up here too soon. But th- what he's going to read right now is the Old Testament. Out- Are you ready, Nathan? <laughs> a little spontaneous here. We're going to do, he's going to read Isaiah chapter 35, and this is the Old Testament background for what's going on right now in this gospel. So Nathan, would you come up and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 35, hold your place in Mark, and then I'll come back and finish this last point. Five ninety five of your Pew Bibles, you'll find our text. Well, read with me the word of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. Thank you, brother. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And that's what we see right here. That's the explanation. So we come to point number three, an unexpected 
explanation, an unexpected explanation. In other words, this last point is trying to get at this. Why the unbelief where we expect belief? Why the belief where we expect unbelief? What, what is going on? How does someone come to receive Jesus, to have, this, to have the words on their mouth and in their heart that Peter had? You are the Christ. Where does that come from? How does that happen? Is that just Peter being smart enough? Is that Peter finally getting it? Or does that have to do with something that was promised in Isaiah 35? That the Lord would open blind eyes and that the Lord would unstop deaf ears and He would give hearing and He would give sight. Because as He says in a later part of Isaiah, chapter 45, that it's possible for you to have ears and not hear. He says it right here in Mark 8 too. You, have, you, ha- you can have ears. You can have physical ears and not hear. You can have physical eyes and not see. Because what is discerned about Jesus is discerned spiritually. So why do some come to believe in Jesus and claim that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and trust themselves to Him, follow Him in unreserved obedience and repent of their sin? Why, why does that happen and while others go on living life the way they want to. Why? why? What's, the, what's the explanation? How do you explain, imagine with me for a moment, how do you explain twin brothers growing up in a Christian family, having similar interests, same age, look alike. They even, there's some of those twins that even have this, you know, some twins you can get that are very different from each other. Well, imagine for a second that these twins are virtually identical in every way. They enjoy reading together. They're into the same kind of things. They even talk alike. Their personalities are somewhat similar. All that taught by the same parents, loved in the same family, brought to church one day, sitting in the pew. Pastor's up here doing this, preaching God's Word, talking about the Bible, giving the Gospel. One of the boys, twins, is sitting back there, filling names out, false names out on visitor cards, (laughs) not paying attention at all. By the way, when we get visitor cards, kids don't do that, please. Um... Filling false names out on visitor's cards, not paying attention, and he looks over at his brother to, to hand him a visitor card, and his brother's crying. And he kind of pushes the card away. And the pastor's saying, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. One kid's totally distracted off in La La Land, the other kid's gripped. How do you explain that? Jesus explains that right here in this text. Chapter 7. Verse 31 is the first hint. Jesus opens deaf ears. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. That's a sad, sad situation. He's deaf and he has a speech problem. He's mute. He can't speak very well. And they just beg him, Jesus, please lay your hand on him and heal him. And notice Jesus. And taking him aside from the crowd privately. Jesus is so intentional with people. He pulls individuals to the side and deals with individual people. Jesus is an individual savior. He cares about people, not just general mass of humanity. He died with specific people on his heart and in his mind. 
And we see that here, him taking the man aside. Now, he could have been taking him aside because he didn't want to make a scene. But he's also taking him aside to show this man that he cares about him. He could have just spoken to the man. He could have just said, ears be opened. But he touches him. He gets close to him. Notice what he does. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven. He sighed to him and said, Ephatha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Deaf person can't make himself hear. We cannot make ourselves believe. We need a miracle. We need Jesus to touch us. It's not enough to hear about Jesus. We need our ears open so that we can understand. We are the deaf, and we need ears to hear. And Jesus gives ears to hear. Not only does he open and heal deaf ears, but he also opens blind eyes. Look at eight, chapter 8, verse 22, where he heals a blind man. So Jesus opened ears and he opens eyes. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Again, we got the same situation. Help my friend. And what does he do individually? He took the blind man by the hand. Can't say, follow me, can he? Grabs him by the hand, walks him out of the village. When he spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Now, this tells us something. This man hasn't been blind forever. He hasn't been blind from birth. He recognizes men, and he recognizes trees. He knows something about what a tree looks like. So obviously he's lost his sight. He could be an older man. His vision's gone. No, no, for certain. But notice the compassion of Christ. Do you see anything? Do you see anything? See, when Jesus, if you, if you want Jesus to heal you, you got to be honest with Jesus. Do you see anything? I just see ministries walking. You have got to be honest with Jesus. Don't cover up for Jesus. Tell him what you see. Go to Jesus this afternoon and say, or stay here in this building, praying, until you see. Say, I, I don't see anything. Tell Jesus that. I don't see anything. What he said this morning, I kind of get. But I really don't understand. I just see men as trees walking. He's honest with Jesus. He tells him exactly what's going on in his life and in his heart and what he, what he actually does see. He doesn't try to cover it up. 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village. Don't even go back in there. Now, there's another reason why Mark positions this account 
right before Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And there's a reason that we have a picture here of this man being touched twice. Not just being touched once and asked, do you see anything? I see ministries walking. Touching them again, do you see? Yes, now I see. It's trying to tell us that this is exactly what's going on in the life of the disciples. They see in part. They see a little bit. And that's what, exactly what Peter's going to see. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but he only sees Christ as a man, as a tree walking. He doesn't see all that Christ is. He doesn't see everything about Christ. Because, as, we, as we'll find out, when he says, okay, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised from the dead three days later, he says, may it never be. And then Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know the work of God. Peter still sees, sees Jesus like a man as a tree walking. He still sees him, just in part. And that's exactly what we see in his confession. You're the Christ, but he doesn't understand everything that that means about what Jesus is as the Christ. Now let me conclude with a few applications. Number one, we must not fall into thinking that if we merely supply the right information or are persuasive enough that we can get people to respond to the gospel. We must not fall into thinking that if we merely supply the right information, and that's critical, we've got to give people the gospel, we've got to give the Holy Spirit something to work with. Okay? He works in, works in union with the Word. So we have to give them the Word. That, that, that doesn't mean, therefore, sit back and do nothing. It means give, them, give the Holy Spirit something to work with. So we've got to supply them with the right information, but we know that we, there's no way that we can be persuasive enough that we can get people to respond to the gospel. We can't persuade people through our eloquent language or our sophisticated arguments. or We can't pressure people or deceive them into the kingdom. Human techniques used to sell the message are not sufficient. We need to avoid deception and distortion of God's Word that softens the edges of the hard truths of the gospel. That's not loving to people, and that doesn't honor God. There is a way to present the gospel that is faithful to the gospel. That's our responsibility. To be faithful to the word and to live a life of love, concerned, caring, compassionate, committed to those people. We don't just drop the gospel bomb on them and walk away from them. All that says is, your Jesus is not really a savior, is he? Jesus is committed for the long haul with people, and we've got to be that way too. And so we're committed to them. We live a life of love to them. We continue to show them comp- compassion, care, continue to invest in them. I heard a story, Pastor Randy Pizzino, some of you know him, really good man. I've enjoyed talking to him over the years and um, really love him and appreciate him. And he, he told me this story about a Jewish friend that he has, a, a Jewish uh, rabbi, in fact. Um, I don't know if he met him at the gym he works with, but somehow they, they got put together. And they became, started up a friendship, started having coffee together and enjoying each other's com- company and everything, became really close friends. And uh, he attended this lecture that this Jewish rabbi was giving. I hope I got the story right. I think I do. Attended this lecture that the Jewish rabbi was giving, and he was sitting in the audience. And the Jewish rabbi was just talking and, and lecturing. And at some point, he, um, he, he looked out at it. He said, I have a friend here. His name's Randy. See Randy back there? And he said, Randy, I want to ask Randy a question. Randy, are you only my friend so that I will become a Christian? 
are you only my friend so that I will become a Christian? And Randy said, no, I'm your friend whether you become a Christian or not. Of course, meaning I really want you to become a Christian, though. But I love you. You're my friend. That's the way we have to be with people. We have to, it doesn't mean that you're not concerned about them becoming a Christian. That's the best way that you can love them. If you don't love them, if you're not concerned about them becoming a Christian, you can't really love them because you want them to be saved from eternity in hell. That's the most loving thing you can want for somebody. But when they don't respond initially or they're resistant or they tell you off or they say, we stop this, keep loving, keep praying, keep being patient, be in it for the long haul and continue to give the gospel. And some of you all are wonderful. God has done wonderful things through you in this regard. And I'm so thankful because this church is a display of that kind of God-given patience with people, of loving wayward kids year after year after year after year, not disowning them, doing, making hard decisions that break your heart. And nevertheless, you do it because you want what's best for them. And that takes courage, and I just want to encourage you that you are a model to me who knows so little of that in these younger parenting days. So our responsibility is to present the gospel clearly, live a life of love, and pray that God will open their eyes to the truth. Closing word. In order to receive Jesus as Savior, Jesus has to do something first. He has to graciously open our eyes to the truth. And my question in conclusion is just this. Has Jesus opened your eyes? Has he, has he taken you aside? See, I can remember, yeah, he started taking me aside. He started dealing with me personally. He started laying his hands on me. And it started doing things in my life that made me scared. And it started doing things in my life. Things started changing and he started laying his hands on me. And he started, and I, at first I didn't get everything and I was just, I was, I was still in process and, now he's helping me along, and I'm just a disciple. I'm just following his footsteps. Has that happened to you? Is that happening in you right now? Because Jesus doesn't just lay his hands on us once. He lays his hands on us and keeps it there. He keeps his hand there, and he keeps opening our eyes. That's why I had Zach read that passage this morning, that the eyes of our heart need to continually be enlightened and opened to know more and more about who Jesus is and all that we have in him. But has he opened your eyes? Do you see things differently now than you ever have before? I can remember, this is one of the distinguishing marks of my own conversion. I don't like sharing this, my own conversion, very much because it can set up an unhelpful paradigm. So well, if I haven't had that experience that that guy's had, then evidently I'm not a Christian. That's not the case. I'm just sharing it as an example. Because it was a vivid example in my own life of when Jesus did this for me. I can remember as a 15-year-old kid being lost. I didn't know the gospel. I didn't know... What was going on? I didn't know what purpose of my life. I didn't know what, what was going on. Um, I was just trying to live day by day, somehow clinging to something, had no foundation, no security, no hope, no peace, didn't know where I was going. And I can remember when I heard the gospel and God turned the light on and put the pieces together for me. Going home that afternoon after spending some time praying with that pastor and talking to him, who I just hunted down on Facebook this week, and I'm so, I don't think I'll get to tell him. That little 15-year-old rascal kid that you spent time with is now doing what you did. And I hope that really encourages him. And, um, but he, he spent time with me, and he talked to me, and I didn't get it. And he was patient with me and continued to, 
to teach and, and talk and, and ask questions and try to draw me out. And then I can remember going to him one day and him saying, him giving the little mini altar call in the front of the little church that was about 35 people, all on folding chairs in some rented building, sitting there, and him saying, anybody want to become a Christian today? Come on. And I, I just stand up. I want to become a Christian. Walk forward. And he's like, this has been a long time coming. I've seen it. I've seen God at work in your life. I've been encouraged. I've been praying for you. Um, and then uh, and, and we just kneeled down together. We prayed together. God decisively changed me. And I can remember going home that afternoon, and across the fence was my friend Gary that I hung out with all the time. Really good friend of mine. Different. The pastor's name was Gary, too, which is kind of weird. But looking across the fence and seeing uh, Gary and him shooting hoops after, and I was like, I'm going to go over there and talk to Gary. So I went, out, went over and I said, I said, Gary, do you realize God made that tree? <laughs> Gary's like, what? And I said, God made that tree. Suddenly, the universe has God in it. That's what happens when you're converted. God comes into the universe. He's welcomed back into the universe. Rips us out of the center and now all of a sudden puts himself there. Himself there. That's what was happening. I looked at everything differently. Started seeing things differently. Started interpreting life differently. And that's an ongoing process that Jesus continually works in us. But has that begun in your life? Are you even beginning now to see things differently? Even in unexpected ways. God is at work. God is at work. If you're beginning to desire Jesus and you're beginning to, to long for him, I'm talking especially to people who may be visiting with us this morning, if you're beginning to desire Jesus, and you're, you're finding longings for him, you don't understand it all, you don't get it all, just believe what you know, and follow in that, obey that, and God will give you more light, he'll give you more help. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, are you seeing things more differently all the time? Are you increasing in your understanding? Is God becoming more and more and more and more the center of your worldview? That you can't hardly think of anything without reference to God. That's a truly that's what that's what happens through the process of sanctification. Even the most mundane things begin to be seen in references to God. Everything. We go to movies. We watch a movie. We, we talk about it afterwards, and we're, we're learning. How, how, there was a redemption theme in that movie. Who was the Savior in that movie? How did that person get saved? How does that relate to the Bible story? You just start thinking. You can't get that out of your system. Gospel DNA has been built into you, and you start to see everything with reference to that. And that's the way it's going to be for us. We're going to, that's what the process of saying, that's what the renewal of the mind is as we continue to sit under the Word, immerse ourselves in the Word. So that's what I would call us to do. Jesus is so gracious. I want you to see His grace this morning. See His grace. See how tender He is with people. See that in the face of unbelief, we see belief. See that in the face of what we expect belief, we see unbelief. And then see the totally unexpected explanation, Jesus Himself being the decisive factor in all of that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that Jesus brings grace and salvation to all people, regardless of 
gender and nationality and status or class or upbringing or education or intelligence or personality. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not giving up on us and our persistent forgetfulness. Our persistent forgetfulness. God, we forget so much. You've taught us so much and we, it just, we, we, we hear it, we have to hear it over and over again. We have to hear it over and over again because we just perpetually forget. Thank you for remembering our frame. Thank you for knowing that we're dust and thank you that that doesn't turn away your love from us. Thank you that our failure to understand does not dismiss your sympathy for our failure to understand. Lord, you don't, you don't look at us in our unbelief and say, oh, that's okay. I understand your unbelief. No. To not believe you is a, is a terrible sin. But you are patient with us even in the midst of our failure to understand. You have provided abundant evidence that you're trustworthy. Thank you for gently per- persevering with us until we know the truth. Some of us you persevered with for decades, God. You brought 50 different people into our lives. Some of us it took one. One conversation at one moment, decisive. Some of us, it took years of faithful, long-suffering. Thank you that you can do both. And thank you that our persistent rebellion doesn't disqualify us from your mercy. Please open the eyes and ears of those who know and love you, who've heard the gospel, even us here today, but do not yet fully see you as you are. We all need the eyes of our heart enlightened. So we pray that you would do that. And for those of us who have yet to see, we pray that you would grant sight and ears to people. Help us as Christians to see everyone equally as a sinner who needs Jesus. And help us, give us faith in your ability and willingness to open the eyes and ears of of the most rebellious, the most unlikely person to the truth of your Son. And fill us with faith that you're able to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.